Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to My Millennial Property. I'm Glenn James and this is... John Pigeon. And... We've got a guest today, Corey Shackleton. Hey, Corey, how are you? Good, Glenn. How are you? Welcome, Corey. Oh, hey, John. I'm I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Before we get into this juicy topic, uh, I want to give Sean Wellman from Wellman Finance a little bit of a shout out for getting behind my millennial property. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me personally, using a mortgage broker, it just I'm outsourcing all the research and all the work. Mm, you from, like doing that in your life, don't you, really? Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, so every area of my life I like to outsource, including looking for a mortgage. Mm. So, the reason why I use a mortgage broker is because they're doing mortgages day in, day out. I might only be touching a mortgage every two years, every yeah. three years. So, I don't know what's going on. So, this is why you need a broker that you can build a good relationship with for the long term. Yeah, especially when there's over 80 lenders out there at the moment. Over 80 lenders and so many products. Like, mm. if each lender had two products only, yeah, that's a lot to compare across that's the marketplace. 160. Yeah. So, there's so, so many options and that's mm. why you need a quality broker who's in your corner, yep. who actually knows what the flip's going on. Yes. And Sean Wellman, we're talking about you, buddy. Yeah, the big dog. So, we've got Shaq with us today and... Can I call you a fire professional? Sure. Sure. You can. So, give us a little bit of a rundown on what you've been doing the last, I guess, 10 years even, and what you're doing now, and yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, I guess probably for the last 15 years, I've been working in the in the bushfire space um, with the rural fire service, so working out of their state headquarters down in Sydney, and the last probably six years I've been the Director of Community Resilience, which is really looking after everything that's done by the organisation pre and post fire. So it's about preparing communities, preparing the landscape for bushfires. And then once we see those fires occur, it's about understanding what's happened and then helping transition into recovery for those people in those communities that have been affected. So it's a pretty big you know, portfolio in that regard because you know, a lot of what the RFS does is, is fighting fires, but a big part of what it does is educating communities, preparing them, making sure they understand the risk and making sure that we also have uh, communities that are not just understanding the risk but are also built and placed in locations that are suitable from a design and construction point of view as well. So it's quite a, a, a complex space but I think it's it's a really valuable one when we talk about trying to create resilience in our communities that we have people that are built appropriately and understand risk. Because realistically it can happen at any time, can't it? Unless it's raining non-stop for three weeks i mean if it's if there's been a dry patch and there's a bit of scrub around is that a fair statement to say that it could go at any time yeah absolutely and we, we've seen it you know particularly in the last fire season that even when you get you know patches of rain there's been so much you know long periods of drought you know prolonged periods that 
that kind of small patches of rain doesn't make much of a difference and all of a sudden you get those right conditions where it's a bit dry and a bit windy and a fire kicks off and all of a sudden you you've got something mm. banging on your doorstep so so well, i grew up in a, a very barren no trees flat environment where bushfire was never an issue and there's a, a stubble caught on fire and you'd put it out now living in an area where's lots of trees lots of bushland obviously the summer that we've just been through and the catastrophic events that have occurred in in multiple states it was seemed to be the perfect storm what what was the build-up that made that so big yeah you're, yeah right it was i guess a perfect storm uh, what we had was you know prolonged periods of drought which really fed into i guess windows and periods of pretty extreme weather and you know what what comes with that is a whole range of challenges from you know, not just the dryness of the fuels but availability of water and then when you add that that weather with the wind um, and then the hot temperatures it, it really starts to create those issues and then we saw what unfolded that unprecedented season where we had fires started in Queensland and essentially burnt the whole east coast of Australia in terms of their patch where they were, they were burning and I think it was well over 17 million hectares of uh, bush that was burnt. <laughs> it's amazing there was, you know two and a half thousand homes almost in New South Wales burned down, you know, over mm. 3,000 across the country. So that's not including sheds and outbuildings and other things, you know, that, that come with that. So it's yeah. a massive, massive impact. Mm. Huge. So we're a property podcast. We we, we can talk about bushfires and droughts and everything else. But I suppose why we got you on here today was in the last few weeks there's been people messaging us saying, oh, can we pick up some cheap land um, in these bushfire-affected areas. I, d- I did a clarity call with a, a person last week who'd lost their home, unfortunately, in the fires and had a payout and said, well, what do I do with my money? Do I move out of that area? What, what, what's the impact of a, a bushfire-affected area from a zoning point of view? How does that change their lives in terms of trying to rebuild and, and the impact and the implications? Yeah, it's probably a few parts of that. I think in the, the black and white sense from a zoning point of view, it, it doesn't, it won't change a zoning or affect anything in that regard per se, but what it will do is, is force the hand of someone rebuilding to consider bushfire because, you know, people would have probably built pre-bushfire requirements. The, the bushfire legislation came in quite strongly in 2001, 2002, and anyone that builds now in a bushfire-prone area has got some pretty strict guidelines they've got to comply with and some Australian standards. So, now that they've gone through this case and they've got to rebuild, they'll have to consider those requirements and that does add considerable cost, you know, potentially, you know, to that rebuild space. So that alone is a big piece. And and that's a risk with insuring your current place if you are in one of those zones, because you might be insured your house might be insured for five hundred grand. If there was a total loss and a claim was paid, it might not cost five hundred grand to rebuild. It might cost five fifty or six hundred. Mm. So I know you're not a financial or an insurance expert, but do you think people need, if they are living in a bushfire zone, need to talk to their insurance company and say, hey, what does your company provide in terms of can I increase my sum insured an extra 20% or whatever that is, just in case? Yeah, definitely. We've seen some big fires in in 2013 in, in the Blue Mountains in Springwood. There was 200 plus houses lost there and a big issue arose with people being underinsured in that scenario where they'd, they'd get their payout and you're spot on, Glenn, they'd, they'd get their, their 500000 or whatever the amount was and they'd look at the rebuild cost in a like-for-like scenario and they were they'll 15 20% underinsured. So it's definitely a discussion that should be had. Right. So would those th- these um, 
2,500 homes, for example, that are lost, would they know straight away now what their requirements are to build? Like, has a has a change been made immediately because of the they what what's happened with that um, from an RFS perspective? Yeah, it's a it's really a, it's a site by site assessment that goes on. So mm. if someone might live in one you know one part of a suburb and might back onto the bush, and someone might live a street away. Mm. We could similar similar piece of bush, but as you can imagine, there's a different risk there because they're further away. So, yeah. what happens is, and the RFS will go through this process: is each homeowner will get an assessment of what their what's called their bushfire attack level or their bowel level is for their their property, and that will then determine how they rebuild. Yeah. So, there's a series of classes that sit within that, ranging from what's called the flame zone, which is right up against the bush, and then it steps away as you get further away from the sure. bush. So, they'll they'll start to have those assessments done. The mm. RFS will start to give that information out to the community. Is that like I know that's very specific to New South Wales. It would it would be similar in other parts of the country as well, ish. Yeah. So the way it sits is the National Construction Code, which applies across the country, has a section has a standard that sits for bushfire. And all states are subscribed to complying with that standard. In New South Wales, it's, it's more stringent in the sense that we have another document that's enshrined in New South Wales legislation called Planning for Bushfire Protection. And that also covers not just the construction of the buildings, but your landscaping, your access, your water, uh, and all your separation as well. So it's a whole... It's that's unlike New South Wales to have more red tape than the rest of the planet. Don't <laughs> <laughs> be like that. So um, you mentioned bell ratings or, or, or looking at um, essentially where the bushfire rating or zone is around us and and i've seen numerous occurrences over time where there's some cheap land that hasn't been built on before and it's forty thousand dollars for example under what everything else is but when they put plans into council they realize oh hang on a minute there's a there's a bell rating that's too high talk to us briefly about how that affects things yeah so I guess that the, there's two there's two parts from a development point of view. If someone wants to come along and, and build a house, now they get their bell rating and it, it falls out as one of the, the the six classes, I guess, of a bell rating. The higher you get, the higher the cost. So if you're in that upper end and you're in that flame zone category, which is the the worst case scenario, then you know you might be talking 15 to 25 percent on top of the cost of your house to put in those extra requirements wow. to build. So that's that's mm. a big cost you've got to factor in. If you're going to do something a bit more um, kind of development savvy, like a dual occupancy or a small subdivision, then there's another level of requirements that come in where, you know, I guess that the approach from a policy perspective is we don't want to add more people in high-risk areas. So you've got to then get to a different threshold in your bell rating. So you can't just build wherever you like. You've got to have enough separation from the bush to meet the threshold. So right. then you have these separation requirements which start to come into play. And you might think you could go and do a dual occupancy mm. or a subdivision, but once you start to put these setbacks in from your bush, yeah. all of a sudden the lot can't support that. And yeah. that's where people get caught out. Yeah. Practically and speaking, what are the key things that you would need in your brand new property if you're in a bushfire zone as opposed to a non-bushfire zone? Like is it every property has to have a a tank underwater just for bushfire? Is it different? You can't build a timber fence between the properties? Like, Yeah, there's, there's a range of things. And I mentioned before about this broader spectrum in New South Wales where it covers you know, landscaping and access and water and those things. The general rule of thumb, if you're in a bushfire-prone area, you've generally there's a minimum you've got to have ember protection. So you've got to look at what screens are on your windows, how you seal your house up. It's all about just stopping embers from getting in and around your house. So that's normally the minimum yeah, like you look at things like gutter guards and mm. those kind of amber protection, and that's you know in the order of somewhere between two to five thousand dollars. You know you can probably whack on top of a standard mm. house, and you're pretty much there. It's yeah, not wow. too hard. Wow. And then what goes with that is an assessment of 
depending on what where your site is, do you need to have more more thought put into your access? Do you have to provide a tank? Do you need to provide you know a dedicated fire hose or those kind of things? They start to come into play depending on where your property is. If it's in a suburban suburban block, you've probably got nothing else other to worry about than just your building. Mm. If you're in a rural place where you've got long access roads and you're a bit isolated, then some other factors start to come into play. Yeah, so similar to a flood zone, I suppose. You've got to adapt according. Your house might have to go a bit higher. Mm -hmm. In the example of a fire zone, you just need to obviously take into account the, the protection you need to put in to make sure it's it's safe. The bell rating is a massive one though, isn't it? Like when you're talking 20% extra build cost, like mm. that's a big chunk of money. Yeah, it is. And and most of that goes around things like windows, glazing, yep. um, shutters, uh, a lot of those kind of considerations really at cost. So. Mm. And, and I guess sprinklers in the roof, would that be if you're really on the extreme living up on a property and you're at the top of a ridge and stuff like that yeah the, the way it works is um things like sprinklers and we hear a lot about bunkers and those type of things they're all add-ons that go as part of the package but it doesn't offset your requirements so if you've got to build a house that's that top rating that's flame zone as they call it you can put a sprinkler system on top of that and that doesn't offset any of the other construction it's just an additional measure you'd be doing right. because you're concerned about fire right right how much does uh the, the politics come into play with all this because if there's a housing shortage and, and the government generating income from new housing and, and it improves the economy and all those sort of things, like how much of a, a say do they have in the whole scheme of things to say, well, we'll let this subdivision fly because we need more houses? I always found, like, from an R well, when I was with RFS mm. at their level, you know, particularly big urban release areas and that those big land releases that roll through and rezonings, we were always fairly independent in that. We'd always provide our advice and, mm. you know, it needed to play out as it had to play out. I think generally the, the biggest issues and the biggest challenges we see in what we've been talking about with rebuilds and that is in areas where it's probably reached its capacity. Like a lot of the areas through the Blue Mountains, there's not a lot of land getting released there because of all, all the ridgetops are built out yeah. and they're the worst places to build. So yeah. most of the new land releases are in areas where we can probably manage the risk and as part of that land release, we make sure that we've got perimeter roads around the outside of the subdivision and we've got good separation so that people don't come up against these flame zone yeah. requirements and this extra cost at the build stage yeah so from a land use perspective we try and get it right up front now yeah. and it's more the legacy stuff that was done early. yeah so on legacy stuff if you've purchased an old shack in a fire zone a crazy one have there been any local governments or state governments that you're aware of that have said all right everyone you've got within the next five years you have to do all the window fittings or something like that are governments like at what point do you have to get some legacy properties to spec without you know telling people they need to do it now but within a time period yeah no no one there's no local governments i'm aware of that have gone down the path of trying to make people do it it's generally the case of people get caught when they have an existing house they want to do alts and ads they yeah. come on to put some extensions it triggers a da and then there'll be some requirements to say hey you want to put an extra bedroom in while you're at it you need to upgrade your windows and, and fix the external facade oh so we won't allow the extension unless the whole thing comes up to spec so yeah. they get them at that point and it's a bit and it's 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 a it's a real fine one and even you know that the challenge is always you probably can't ask someone to pull their roof off and, and reclad the whole house but there'll be an effort to try and make the existing structure a bit more resilient otherwise you're going to have this non-combustible you know external piece that's been tacked on mm. against a you know a yeah. timber house yeah, the timber yeah. house is going to burn down anyway so mm. it's trying to find that balance so often that's when people will start to get brought into that discussion mm. but there's been no councils i'm aware of that have tried to enforce that yeah, requirement. okay mm. so if i'm i'm sitting in a 
a bushfire zone that's just been affected. My house survived. I'm I'm living life as normal. My house is fine. I won't be affected by this at the moment unless I want to go and do something extra to my home um, other than maybe my insurance policy might go up. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, putting all the emotional side of it mm. to the side, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think there'd be any impact where someone would be coming along and saying, you've got to now fix something or do yeah. something different. Again, yeah, the insurance piece is probably... A I guess an unknown and something people mm. would want to look out for but they're definitely if you've made it through and you, you haven't lost your house I, I can't imagine there'd be anyone coming and making you do things yeah okay so and this is a, a personal opinion but if you looked at a say a town that was totally ravished by bushfire and there was only maybe 500 people living there to begin with what do you think the future of a town like that looks like now given what you've just told us around building costs and things like that well, I think it looks very different um, we look back to there were some fires that went through Tarthra down near Bega 2018. They lost about 60 to 70 homes there. So it was a very very typical of a lot of those south coast areas that we've seen, but that's happened on a multiple scale now. Mm. And there's probably still only about 40% of their, those homes that have rebuilt, and that's you know three years on. So it does take a while for these communities to rebuild, and a lot of people just you know might get their insurance pad and just say i just can't go through the process of doing this i just Mm. emotionally i can't i've lost everything i don't want to try this again i want to go elsewhere so i think it's fair to say the community will probably look and feel a hell of a lot different you know as time goes on and you know you'd hope from a physical point of view they'll get built back a lot better than what they they were previously but i think for it'll be a different looking community Mm. because i mean a lot of these towns were built 80 100 years ago um and a lot of them are one way in, one way out communities. I'm sure now we're a bit uh, bit more broader in our thinking that um, they would no longer be built that way again. Yeah, and just on that, like a government being a little bit more strategic with like main roads and like clearing 20 metres mm. to the, from the curb as opposed to 10 or something like that. I th- and I think, I think there's, there's a clear delineation between when we talk about what we're going to do in a new subdivision or a new land release, absolutely. We're very smart in how we deal with access. Yeah. Have we got multiple ways in, multiple ways out, perimeter roads, wide, yeah. you know, wide road reserves for clearing. But if you, you look at a, you know, any of those coastal communities down you know, on the south coast, it's very hard retrospectively to come along when they've got a road that punches yeah. through a national park for 15 kilometres mm. to put in some clearing. And even if mm. you did, it probably makes no difference anyway because you've got to travel 15 k's through the bush and a couple of extra trees and what does it matter? They're still going to fall over the road and yeah. block access and cause all sorts of dramas. So mm. it's a really hard retrospective thing to you know to address. Yeah, yeah and I think as well it's like it, it did disturb me. Like I know a lot of people did lose their homes and I was actually thinking about it the other day, I'm like... I don't know what that feeling would be like, like to actually yeah. lose your refuge, your safest place kind of emotionally and, and whatever and all your stuff yeah. and to be displaced. That's horrendous. But if you are living in a zone that is not insurable, like what do you do? I mean, for me personally, if I can't afford to insure my own house, I can't afford a house. Mm. Now, are the bank, and just probably more of a question for John, like I would imagine you'd think the bank's lending to those regions should have to have something in the loan document that every 12 months you need to submit your certificate of currency. Mm. Well, because it's their asset as well if they're using a security. Yeah, I think 
generally it's reasonably loose on the sense that when you buy a property you've got to show a certificate of currency but from then on it's really up well, to you. Well you could cancel it the day after you settle. Yeah that's right and the same with a car. Yeah. So there's really probably no requirement on that but yeah it is unfortunate if the if the conditions change and a lot of um, suburbs and, and homes in Brisbane would have been the same when the man-made flood came through yeah. in 2011 like we had no they they never thought that was going to happen to their area so their insurance policies and the values on their home have um severely changed haven't they mm. like i wonder like if you were going to build or buy in a high risk fire area i would imagine if you can't get building insurance you've got to rethink your living arrangements like unless you've got that much wealth you yeah. can self-insure yeah, I think um, even in a lot of those uh, sort of remote areas that are prone to storms and floods and all that, you can still get insurance. It just costs a lot more than the average Joe. So it's just a, a, it's a factor that's just got to be catered for, doesn't it? Like, mm. I don't think it's a game changer personally, but um, I suppose what we're saying is for those that think they're going to get some cheap property out of this, it might not be the wisest decision to go into one of those areas and think, oh, yeah, I'll pick up this land cheaply and I'll I'll flog it off in a couple of years and make thousands. Probably not going to happen. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you're going to find any super great bargains. I think mm. there's there's a bit more to it than it's not a fire sale. Yeah, pardon the pun, but yeah, um, I think there's a there's a bit more to it than that for sure. Mm. So what are you? So you've left the RFS. So what are you doing now? You're consulting. Yeah, so I work for a company called Black Ash Bushfire Consulting and. You know, what we do there is a whole range of things, really, from you do a lot of work with land managers and, and government agencies helping understand their bushfire risk and, and doing fire management planning and, you know, looking at issues of fire trails and, you know, how we manage fire in the landscape, uh, right through to you know, helping people that want to build a house and they want to understand their, their bushfire attack level or they want to work through the, the challenges of getting a small subdivision through. I guess it's, it's there's, there's a couple of interesting pieces that move. There's the understanding the landscape and fire behaviour and what that's going to mean for your site. But then there's understanding how that overlays into the legislative framework and how we navigate through those approvals that you mm. require. So we kind of help people in that. In yeah. That so if I've got a property and it's semi-rural in a bushfire area, what's and I don't have a bushfire survival plan, what are the kind of three or four steps that I need to do in my bushfire survival plan? Mm-hmm. I think the, probably the, the most important things probably initially aren't the physical things. Like it's, it's just understanding what are you going to do. And I think that's where most people come unstuck is they'll, and we see it I mean, even when we talk to communities after fires, they'll live in an area like the Blue Mountains and know that fires are risk, but they just don't personalise it and feel as though it will happen to them. So I think it's coming to terms, you know, with your household, with your family to understand, well, what does fire mean to us and what are we going to do? Does that mean that when it's a you know catastrophic day or an extreme day, we're going to leave and just not be there? Yeah. We're going to take the pets with us and go to Auntie Mary's house or does it mean we're going to stay? And if we are going to stay, understanding emotionally and physically what that's going to be like. It's going to be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's going to be pitch black. Mm-hmm. It's going to be loud. It's going to be scary. And that's when most people come awry because they think they're going to stay and defend and they feel as though they're prepared. Yeah. All of a sudden it goes pretty ordinary and they decide they want to get out and, and that's when they get stuck on the roads and the they, worst time to get absolutely. out absolutely yeah and that's the victoria where we 173 people died a majority of those were caught on roads because they left late yeah. and they got stuck so do you think it's worth staying i th- i think it, it can be if you're well prepared if you if you know what to expect you've got your property in good shape and, and we see it 
now every fire that that goes through and impacts communities you know the, there's a bunch of research that's done on, on why houses survived and why they did it and what we often see is that at the end of the day the houses particularly the ones that are built to a fairly decent standard as long as they're well maintained mm. if somebody's there and they know how to you know, get around with a hose once the fire front's gone and, and put out some uh. put out some embers and stop those small fires at start, they're they're in pretty good shape. But the the caveat to that is you've got to be really well prepared and you've got to understand what it's going to be like. Yeah. That's surprising to hear you say that because I just think logically I'd get the hell out of there. And like, I think that's the, should be the general advice. I mean, yeah. Like, it, like the, at the end of the day, when you want to manage risk, you just avoid it. Mm. So as long as you know that, yep, the triggers are, there's smoke in the air and, you know, yeah. it's it's the night before and I look at the, the forecast tomorrow, yep, I'm not going to be there. Or it's mm. one of those catastrophic days, hey, let's get the kids and let's just get out. That's yeah, the safest and, thing. And would that be um, where we decide that if it is coming to fire season, we obviously make sure our property's well kept. Mm-hmm. We make sure that any safe stuff is either there's a safe in the ground somewhere or something like that. Yeah. And then we say we're actually going to leave as soon as the local advice is to leave or stay. Like, is there, is there always a clear recommendation? Be, not always. Like, there That's can be, weird, isn't it? And there can be areas like, you know, if you look, again, we, we picked the Blue Mountains because they're the obvious one. You've got areas like Mount Irvine, Mount Wilson, Mount Tomar. They've got, you know, 15, 20, 30 k's of, you know, one road in, one road yeah. out. If all of a sudden a fire starts and it pops up on the RFS app and says there's a fire near you, it might be long to, far too late to be trying to yeah. get on the roads and leave. So it really depends, and that's where you've really got to understand it. And your local brigade, from an RFS perspective, you can go and have the chats. They always, you know, love the opportunity to talk. Would they to ever them. go to site? They can. Yeah. yeah, they often will. You know, even things like you know Christmas time, you'll see Santa go around in a fire truck. You know, ask the question when they're around, or mm. you know, what what do we best do here? So yeah. I think, but I think you've got to understand. You know, like if you live on the central coast and you live in right at the end of Wong Creek or in Duralong, it's probably a different approach to if you're back on to, you know, somewhere in Tumby or in Glenning Valley. So yeah. you've got to know your risks to make your decision. So you transitioned out of RFS in the last six months or so. How has that transition been given that it's probably the busiest time for firefighters in the last <laughs> eighty five years? Yeah, it was it was an interesting one. I had the I had the discussion about about moving on just before the we kind of basically had the discussion with, with Shane, who's the commissioner, and he, he said, oh, listen, let's just get through tomorrow. It's going to be a bad day, and then we'll, we'll make some announcements. And then that day, it kind of all kicked off and started this kind of cascade of fires. So we kind of didn't speak about it again, and it got to a couple of weeks out, and we decided maybe we should just hold fire, and I agreed I'd hang around. So in the end, instead of finishing before Christmas, I finished about four or five weeks ago. I kind mm. of They convinced me just to stay through right. the fire season and help mm. out, which was great. But it has been challenging because, like I said, all the stuff in my portfolio was that pre and post fire so yeah. i feel like it's it's all kind of the stuff that i should be dealing with but at yeah. the same time i've still got some really good relationships with the rfs and you know i'm yep. always willing to help them out and and they've got some they've got a myriad of great people anyway but yeah so uh, like unfortunate for the situation but has it been beneficial to your business i think so. I, I think so like i think the fire industry in itself is you know at the moment it's it's in a whole different space mm. there's a there's a Royal Commission, there's a State Inquiry, there's all sorts of stuff going yeah. on. So for us, there is a lot of interest and there's a lot of particularly government agencies and big land managers that are starting to say, we either dodged a bullet, we better get some help or something did hit us and what Made do we do people now? people more aware. Yeah. yeah, so I think there's yeah. a f- there's far more interest in the space. People are far more attuned to it. Yeah, he's a pretty modest guy, Shaq. He's, uh, he was only one under the big dog commissioner. Um, 
<laughs> there are oh, fits too. I don't know we'd yeah. say that. Even when the commissioner's at the front and the camera, Shaq's just Hiding. sitting behind him. Yeah, Hiding. yeah. Hiding. <laughs> so back to the personal survival plan. So we've talked about the non-physical. We agree that we are going to stay or go. Like as part of the plan, is it like what else do we consider? I think the, if it's in the physical sense, the basic stuff is the stuff you probably would generally think of good maintenance. Yeah, you've got a good, well-maintained lawn, maybe some, some landscaping things. You don't want to have shrubs and combustible mulch in and around your house and under your windows because, you know, we've seen in the last fires, houses getting lost a kilometre away from, from bush, you know, so those embers will spot in, they'll land in a garden bed, they'll get up against some mulch and they'll start a fire and then, it, you know, the heat from the fire cracks a window, embers get in and your house burns down. Wow. So that that kind of immediate area around your property if you've got a meter or two that's really well maintained almost like a a path or some non-combustible mulching around your house and then just a good mode lawn around that you're in pretty good shape mm. um, gutters obviously yeah clean your gutters the, the, if you, you think of your typical well-maintained you kind be of doing anyway, right? home and garden front page yeah. kind of thing that's <laughs> that's the ideal thing you don't necessarily i mean it's not all about having shutters and sprinkler systems and bunkers i mean they're all fantastic but the average punter isn't going to go and spend, you know, 10, 15 grand on a sprinkler system and then another 20 grand on a bunker. Uh. But you can go out and mow your lawns and clean your gutters out. Yeah. And if someone has property in a fire zone, at that end of the spectrum, you know, the government requirement might be to have a dedicated fire tank. Could be. Yeah. yeah. If you're not on reticulated water supply or if you're in an area where it's unreliable, we will start to look at you know, those options of having some dedicated water for firefighting. Mm. So if brigades do turn up, and again, that's a that's never never something you can bank on. But if mm. they do, there's water there. Or if you want to stay yourself, you've got something you can you can fight the fire with. Yeah, wow. And would that include like diesel generators for pumps and all that, or whatever? Yeah, it does. It'd, it'd be a you know suitable kind of five horsepower diesel pump potentially with a with a hose, and, mm. and also the right fittings on the tank so that the fire services can connect into it and, and use the water. Yeah, wow. So just on that, like people are more and more aware of building eco-friendly better for the environment saving um natural sources uh, from a home point of view is that is that better uh for a, for a bushfire to come through and and protect it or not better to have built that way yeah yeah i think um i think people that build like smart passive houses can do it in a way that is also very bushfire conscious you know generally that you think of a passive house they're generally very they want to maintain that internal temperature so they're very well sealed a lot of the, the features of a good passive house is also very compatible with what you want from a bushfire perspective yeah. things like necessarily having if you're in a the high in flame zone having timber external timber isn't going to be compatible but no. you can still have some you know you think about you know, that additional upfront cost to build a good passive house with bushfire measures over the life of that development over 50 years the overall savings you make probably turn out that it's actually a cheaper investment than just going and grabbing, you know, your off-the-shelf product and sitting it on the ground and trying to retrofit it. So, yeah. they, the the passive house designs do have some very good features from a bushfire mm. perspective, mm. as long as you get the right person and you design it right. Mm. Cool. Yeah, fascinating. Good stuff. W- would there be anything else like you've got a microphone now that you think people should be aware about or know about pre, post, during fire to do with their property? that we haven't touched on? I, th- I think it's just... And I think people will be better at this now, but just realising that it can happen to you and just just have some thought around it and have the discussion, sit around the dinner table one night with the family and say, hey, what will we do? 
when that moment comes and it's catastrophic tomorrow, do we want to get out or we not want to have the discussion? And then I think like the things we talked about, just be diligent about it, just keep keep your place maintained and well, that's one less thing you've got to worry about. But, you know, we've all got a million things to do in our day, but I think that would be, would be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And just the last one, and I don't expect you to be a... Um I don't know, a subject matter expert, but we heard on, you know, the news that local governments weren't allowing, you know, back burning and all that stuff or fire reduction, fire hazard reduction burning, whatever they call it. Was that just from, I guess, anecdotally, was that just all hype and wanting to blame the green agenda or like, was there actual RFS I guess, brigades that weren't allowed to do reduction burning? It's actually a really complex one. I yeah. mean, and I think people, it's interesting how short-term people's memories can be. I mean, we go back not even 12 months and there was all the hysteria and anger around hazard reduction burning and the smoke impacts on air quality in Sydney. Um, and the amount of hazard reduction burns that, you know, basically we, we didn't go ahead with because of, you know, we every time there's a burn that's planned, we do a series of prediction modelling to determine where the fire's going to burn, you know, how quickly, what's the right time to light and what's the projected smoke that's going to come out of it and where is it going to go, where is it going to drift and what's it going to impact. Now, if we started seeing those impacts, particularly over the Sydney Basin where all the smoke tends to drain because it's a basin, then we'd we'd start to cancel burns because of that pressure Mm. around public Mm. health. So I think in that regard, it's it's not really so much local government that caused those issues. It's, It's just part of the planning phase and there's so many competing interests now around it's not... 40 years ago where you just go and light up and you know it's and you do your burning now mm. there's there's so many other things that come into play so quite a complex space um and i think there is like everything there seems to be a bit of a pendulum as it swings one way and it probably started to go the way of less and less burning maybe now it might start to swing back a little mm. bit given what's just mm. happened but it's not the, the so answer either like hazard reduction burning isn't the panacea to the problem it's part of it yeah right and it's a good land management tool for a whole range of reasons ecologically mm. and also from a risk point of view but it's yep. not the answer we could go and you know we could go and burn another twice what we burnt and it wouldn't make the, it wouldn't significantly make the problem heaps better wouldn't yeah because a, a lot of uh, bush burned but there's still a lot of bloody bush that didn't burn as well yeah, yeah. and even under the conditions that we saw there was also burns that we'd put through and because you, you know when you do a the hazard reduction type burns they're fairly low intensity it leaves a lot of the canopy and it leaves a lot of fuel potentially still around still there. so we had fires that had hit into those areas that had been burned and it just moved straight through them because of the intensity of these fires we mm. saw under yeah, the conditions right. so yeah. it's not the answer mm. interesting mm. very interesting well that's been very very fascinating yeah yeah so shack commission commissioner shack <laughs> no long way, long way <laughs> two i see two i see yeah. yeah yeah thank you Corey. no worries thank yeah you, thanks coming on Stable thanks, info. all right mm. cool. bye-bye bye Oh, actually, before we, is there a, is there a resource that people can go to? Yes. Like, yep. The RFS website has a, a fair bit of stuff. There's a section on the website. I think it's called Plan and Prepare. Yeah. And if you go in there, there's a if you want to look at how you might assess your site, there's what's called a single dwelling kit, and you can grab that out, and it tells you how to do a real rough assessment of your property to determine what that belt could yep. be. And then site. most uh, state-based fire websites would have that very similar yeah Yeah. any any of you if you're in victoria you go to the cfa same thing south australia the cfs they'd all have a similar product where you could unpack that and get a bit of an idea ultimately when you want to make that leap and go right into it i'd be engaging someone that's probably more down that expert path though Mm. Mm. interesting Mm. love it all right (laughs) bye-bye thanks guys 
Special thanks to Wellman Finance, our podcast partner. Sean Wellman and his team are available to coach you through your property journey, even if it's your first time. With expertise in investment and home loans, they're in your corner providing education and support as you take each step. For more info, check out wellmanfinance.com.au forward slash M3. If you want to really turn up your property, education, and information journey, make sure you check out the Solvair Property and Finance Academy. This is an amazing online resource that John has put together. It's to empower and to give results to people who are either first-time buyers, whether for their home to live in or an investment property, or if you're a seasoned property investor. This online academy is for you. Check out the link in the show notes. It will change your life if you let it. If you're after personal financial advice, this podcast is not for you. But if you do want a financial advisor or mortgage broker to talk with about your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'll put you in touch with one of our trusted professionals.